All right, I'm here with Ivor Cummins. Uh, you know him as the Fat Emperor. He is a biochemical engineer and corporate problem-solving expert. And I'll let him talk a little bit more about what he's been doing, but he's got some exciting news from Ireland, actually. Um, he put together, or helped put together a letter that apparently has had a really big impact um, on, on policy over there. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Right, Brittany. Yeah. So just very brief background. I'm a biochemical engineer. Originally, I spent 30 years in technical problem solving leadership, sometimes leading up to 100 engineers worldwide and, you know, $100 million complex technical issues. So that's been my whole life, really. It's what I was born for. And around eight years ago, I got into health and metabolism. And then this year, COVID hit. And I realized that coronavirus was being managed terribly in terms of crisis management because that's what I've done for years and in March I realized they're wrong about lockdowns but I said that's okay because I can understand fear got the best of them you know footage from Italy um, the modeling from Imperial College and I hit HME was around 12 times too big the numbers which I knew but the governments that's what they got so it's understandable but in May when the curve had gone through exactly as we predicted for any viral infection of this type and it was falling down and the hospitals were emptying and the curve was flattened and they would not take out lockdowns and then in July when they brought in mandatory masks when there was two months of no epidemic then I realized this is a huge issue for the world and I, I got to get involved more. So in Ireland we eventually ran out of patients in August I have a large group of doctors in Ireland and, and um, consultants, specialists who are 100% behind our view of the world. They know it. And um, we decided to write a 12-page paper just going through all the data in the different segments of this, virology, immunology, epidemiology, uh, and just various other aspects, and actually showing the real data from Europe rather than what the media has shown, which has been grossly misleading, uh, day in, day out. And we got that letter to the top Irish politicians, the Taoiseach, or Prime Minister, uh, the leaders in the council who are running this coronavirus show. And we also asked people on Twitter and on social media to send it to your politicians, your business leaders, your organizational leaders. Send it to anyone of influence you know. And when they read it, they'll realize it'll break the spell of the media absurd coverage of this and hyperbole and exaggeration. And that's what kind of happened. So in the, in the next week or two, we saw a couple articles quoting our letter. It was brought up in the Irish Parliament during a, a debate on the draconian measures that were being implemented. And the letter was brought up. Uh, the head of that council actually assured people who wrote to him he would get it to all of the civil servants who are running this corona show. So all of those guys got it too, and it probably woke them up a bit. So we've seen we've seen quite a bit of reaction from it, and and that's all we could hope for, to be honest. Yeah, but that in itself, I mean, and, and you said that policy has actually been changed or will be changed. You think because of because of what you've done? Well. It's hard to prove that like anything in science or even in Corona. How do we know what would have happened without it? But I think the coverage I mentioned and the feedback we've got, uh, to give one example, a surgeon called to my house 
And he's a part of a group of 250 surgeons. And he said, Ivor, the work you're doing is so important with Dr. Farrell. Um, the vast majority of our uh, surgeons agree with you completely, but they can't speak up because of the environment we've got going on. Uh, but he gave me a card, wished me best, and uh, there was a large donation inside. So I think, you know, we know that there's a load of people who are professionals who know the reality and are afraid to speak up. It's hard to say what would have happened over the past three weeks in Ireland without our intervention, uh, with surety, but certainly the tones changed noticeably. And to give one example, Kildare County in Ireland was given a two-week lockdown because of high uh, PCR test positives, which is an extremely misleading uh, measurement. It should not be used. But anyway, they're calling them cases as if they're spreading like wildfire. So they locked down Kildare for two weeks on, I think it was Thursday. Our letter hit them. And on Monday, there was an urgent meeting and they came out with a statement that they were dropping the Kildare lockdown. Wow. To the point that people were, were replying on Twitter and saying, what the hell are you guys doing? You locked down a few days ago for two weeks, and now you're saying you're dumping it. And what uh, was their reason? Those, what, what, did they, what, what was the they reason didn't give they a gave? Reason. They d effectively didn't give a reason. They just said they were reassessing. It's a dynamic situation, blah, 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 <laughs> politics. And they just realized the lockdown could be an embarrassment if this letter goes further. And also, I think reading the letter has a wakey-wakey effect to politicians because although it's technical with graphs, they're quite um, impactful. And anyone reading it who believes it's a big epidemic and it's still a threat, when by the time you finish it, even if you're quite entrenched in your position, it's going to shake your faith because the facts are so brutal that we lay out. And we, we can talk about some of those facts in the, in the next short while. Yeah. And, and just, you know, I, I feel that just having something, graphs can be very powerful because it's a, maybe people absorb visual information better or it, it sticks with them more. But, you know, early on the flatten the curve graph, that, that was the conversation, you know, that's the conversation kind of started and ended with that. And I think you're right. I think if they see something that black and white that they can't refute, it's, it's got to be tough. But I have to say, from America, listening to what you're telling me, it sounds like you're coming from another planet, because we're not used to our politicians actually listening to evidence, listening to what we have to say. There are people here who've been doing the same thing. I'm sure you heard about the, the frontline doctors talking about hydroxychloroquine and how that was just smashed down in the media. Um, I'm just, I'm just astounded that they listened. That's, that's, that's very encouraging. And I hope maybe we can get some of that going here in this country too. Yeah, America is a specific challenge. My co-author, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gerber, we had a book out on nutrition and health and longevity and metabolism a couple of years ago. He had to stay out of this whole thing from the start because he said in America, it's just too political. It's just gotten too hot. So I just mm -hmm. can't engage. And that's happened all across America, except for obviously some brave doctors. So in America, it's so intensely political. And I think the pharma influence and the regulatory capture and yeah. America is beset with all of these powerful forces, including the left and right and the whole Trump thing. It's just become absolute madness. 
So I actually stay out of it too. In recent videos, I released a video five days ago, kind of a video of the letter. And it's got three quarters of a million views in five days, which is way more than usual. And a lot of people are really appreciating it because like the letter, it tells you a series of facts and data and numbers. It doesn't claim any hypotheses. Um, and I'd say that's working pretty well for America too. But America, in Europe, there are politics, but nothing like the situation you guys face. And in Europe also, we have the advantage, if you will, that Europe is northern temperate seasonal region. Right. And we have a Gumpert's curve. Uh, viruses like flu and coronavirus and prior coronaviruses, they kind of rise up in winter and spring and rapidly acquire immunity, quite a severe rise, and they fall off. And then you're largely done till next winter. But in America, this is an unfortunate thing. In the northeast of America, you're like Europe, and you got the New York rise and fall, very severe, very sad, a lot of fatalities. Uh, but the problem is the south behaves like Mexico, or maybe more like Peru and Brazil. It's got a completely different dynamic of the virome. So it got a little bump earlier on, but then in the last few months, it's got its rise. Now, thankfully, it's falling, but it's given America a rise, a fall, and then a long hump before finally fading away. And that gave the appearance of a second wave and it kept the fear alive. Right. And if you look back, and this might be interesting to your listeners, that rise, fall, and a second hump is a classic pattern of influenza and all the prior influenzas, 57, 68, 42 in America, the data shows the exact same shape. So mm. Corona is actually following a natural law, but to the politicians, they can use it as a second wave hysteria. Right, right. Unfortunate. And, yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm in Southern California, so that's what we're, he we're hearing. You know, we're locked down more than anybody and there are mask mandates and all this stuff. And it's, and, you know, all they talk about is the cases. You know, we've got, we've got rising cases and now, you know, not even that, but um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the case-demic because the first, your first video that I, that I saw was about the case-demic and um, you did a great job of just making that really clear. I think for a lot of people, they hear numbers of cases and they don't really know what that means. Yeah, the case-demic, I think some other guy said it on Twitter. I won't claim the word, but I immediately adopted it, and I probably propelled it out there a lot. Um, in fact, one person on Twitter who's a linguist said he's putting it in, get, going to get it put in the dictionary as a new nice. word. <laughs> That's nice. Wow. So, yeah. So a case-demic, basically, an epidemic uh, originally was when you had a widespread, you know, new virus or whatever that was very widespread and reached across the country and reached high rates of cases. And also the definition used to be that it had a major impact on the society. Um, now, in 2009, with the swine flu, a lot of funny things happened. And I might send you a link after to Spiegel newspaper. Yeah, in Germany. I read that. That's an incredible yeah. article. Yeah. Yeah. It's pivotal. So they did an autopsy or analysis in 2010 about the swine flu panic. And they went through all of the pharma influence on the WHO. And mm -hmm. it was quite stunning and, and actually quite shocking. 
And the WHO actually, under farmer pressure and others, brought down the definition of pandemic. Pandemic just means it goes across many countries, but they brought down the definition to not really include impact. And for all we hear about the impact is very sad with coronavirus, the actual impact is not much different than the bad flu season. So the WHO in 2009, under pressure, met, there was a lot of dissent, but they reduced the definition to just be widespread and, and not really have the impact clause so it could be widespread anything it could be widespread yeah it could be widespread and everyone just gets sick but it's still an epidemic whereas before it was always understood it's widespread and a lot of people are dying you know i mean in all areas so that's actually a big deal that they changed that that's that's kind of significant oh in engineering the measurement and the definition of your tolerance limits and the definition or specifying the problem when it is a problem and is not, is central. Those guys blew it all away, dropped the bar. So now you're into a crazy situation where there's no checks and balances. You're not really focusing on impact anymore. It's just an epidemic. Wave your hands, go crazy. So that's what they did. And the reason was that there were multi, multi multi-billion contracts for vaccines for swine flu. And pharma, they had 30 representatives, I think, who met with the WHO, Uh, supposedly to just work together to get a vaccine. But the reality is they're getting one powerful message. We can't develop a vaccine unless this is declared an epidemic and that will trigger legal functions where governments will commit vast sums of money regardless of the outcome to the vaccine development. So you have to reach this, this bar in order for the coffers to flow money to pharma for vaccines. So you can understand now why they wanted the bar right down, right? So the money would flow from the tax coffers. And that's what happened. Now, one CNN reporter, very interestingly, raised a point and said, you guys are talking about this being a pandemic now or an epidemic, but on your website, it says it has to have X, Y, Z impact, you know, undermining the movement of society because of massive death or whatever, And he said, that's on your website, but you're not saying that here. So they quickly went and they just took it off their website. So, yeah. And nobody noticed. Yeah, someone noticed. But where's the impact? Well, with swine flu, we know now it was immunocompromised and it it really was fizzled out in no time. But, But to get back to the cases, this is really pivotal because... If you take away the impact, then really, if you have lots of cases, you can have your epidemic Mm -hmm. and you can have all your actions. You can have mandatory stuff. You can have mandatory vaccines. You can have all of this machinery, but without it really being a hard hitting epidemic. And what we've seen now is during our epidemic uh, of coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID in some people, immunocompromised and aged mainly, in March, April in Europe and in Northeast America, we certainly had a major impact. And it was particularly high because the last flu season in 2019 was very soft. It was incredibly low excess death right through the respiratory season. And 2020, right up to March, was incredibly low as well. And the point is, a lot of people who would have sadly died during that long period had built up. Right. We usually would pass away, you know, with what they call the old man's friend, pneumonia, influenzas in the winter. 
that's where a lot of people who are susceptible pass away. So we had this long period and we had a buildup of susceptible people, essentially. And that drove most countries' impact level, like Sweden. It was nothing to do with lockdown. They had right. a very soft season with around 4,000 less than expected deaths in the past 18 months. So when Corona came along, sadly, you know, it hit hard and it hit short. So for 2020, for most areas, we had basically a whole influenza season's worth of excess mortality squashed into around six weeks. And that's why it was so dramatic. Right. But if you look at 2020, totally in the respiratory season, winter, total, including Corona, there's around 180,000 Corona deaths in 360 million people in Europe. It's 0.045%. So 500 in a million. And 2018, actually, over the whole four or five months of the season, which is a compare, was 140,000 deaths. So 180,000 versus 140,000. Corona was compressed in a short period of time. So obviously, it's going to be much more in your face. Mm -hmm. But overall, not much. And 2015 was actually slightly higher and the year 2000. But no one did anything. No one even right. noticed. The hospitals were very busy in those years. Some were overloaded. They had to move patients. But there was no COVID. So it was just accepted as a bad flu season. Right. So that's the difference. So with the case-demic, what we've got now is during the bad period, which was tough, we had massively rising cases. And a couple of weeks later, we had very significantly rising mortality. And then they both came down. And in Europe and in Northeast America, by the end of May, the epidemic was largely over. I mean, it's in all the graphs. It was down, gone. And the next couple of months, they kind of wouldn't let go of it. And then they began to test more and more and more. And the coronavirus is going to be around forever now. It's, it's out. So they're going to find loads of virus, but have almost no deaths and very low intensive care. That's a case-demic. Because if you suddenly test, which we never did for flu, mm -hmm. we never did this, except for swine flu. That was a case-demic, but that's a different story. That was the first case-demic. Um, right now, they're testing, and huge testing means big positives. But they're just PCR positives. And that test only finds a couple of fragments of the virus. It'll find people who had it two months ago and are now long finished with it. They're just dead viral fragments. It'll get false positives. When the epidemic's over, a lot of the people who come up as cases are just false positives. So the test is unfit for purpose. But they're taking this PCR test, which is unfit for purpose at this time, and they're calling everyone not a test positive or a viral fragment found. No, 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 no. They don't call it that. They call it a case. And it's always been accepted that a case is symptomatic or hospitalized. You know, if John Murphy was a COVID case or a, or a corona case, it means he went to hospital. He had to get treated. And yes, he had the virus. But they're calling cases now, people who are mostly asymptomatic, young people, completely unaffected. They're calling them cases. Like is that the first time this has ever happened? Are you aware of any other epidemic, any other any other illness for which that's happened, where they're calling things, people who are not symptomatic, they're still calling them cases? 
Yes, there was a few years ago, and I can get the link and maybe send it to you afterwards. There's a whooping cough uh, scandal. It was an actual no. scandal reported in the newspapers a few years ago. And this thing happened, this new PCR test that's become really fast and easy. It created a whooping cough crisis and not nearly as big as this one. Uh, and it became a scandal because afterwards they went back and realized that it wasn't really much whooping cough at all. And there were very few people medically impacted, but it caused a Ferrari. And they should have learned from that, but they didn't. But the big one was 2009 swine flu. And that was where Fauci actually and his company developed flu chip, which is a rapid PCR test. Here we go again. So what happened is the swine flu, they all thought was going to be a big impactor. Uh, they developed billions of dollars worth of vaccines. That was another scandal because a huge amount of people in Europe got narcolepsy and there was hundreds of millions of dollars paid out in compensation for a rushed right. vaccine. So that's another scandal based on the swine flu. You know, you can see the theme here. But in terms of the cases, yes, in 2009, some people died from swine flu way lower than they expected. But at the end of the winter, coming into summer, they had flu chip, rapid PCR, and they started testing like crazy. And this is all documented in my recent video. You see there was an enormous amount of swine flu, H1N1 cases seen, but no real deaths. And right through the summer, the media in America particularly was in hysteria. There was talk about masks. There was talk about urgent vaccines. There was a panic with supply of masks potentially spread around the world. Not so much in Ireland, but I heard it, but I ignored it because I knew that swine flu was, was not a, a huge deal. Um, but that was a case stemic. And then when they came into the fall, right? They had slowed down the testing because they kind of realized nothing's happening on the ground. So they kind of began to give up. But in the fall then, they expected in the winter that it would hit. So guess what they did? They Increased started testing. testing like crazy again to get the engine going. And you see this other huge curve of cases, right? The graphs in my video. Yeah. And then eventually people didn't die in the winter either because they got herd immunity from the prior season just like this one. So they had a second case demic, but no one died. Big freak out. No one died. And the same in England. England in the summer of 2010 had a huge spike of cases and a mini panic. And that summer had the lowest influenza death in 20 years wow. in any month. But their case rate was through the roof and the newspapers were full of crisis. So these case demics are pivotal to understand because basically it's taking reality turning it upside down and very convincingly telling the people that there's a massive problem it's very artful so reading reading the spiegel article um and and the the incredible influence of the pharmaceutical industries and this contract for the vaccines Am I being too cynical to think that this whole thing, the the search for cases and the ramping up of the panic, is it too cynical of me to think this is just a money-making operation? This is all this is, is pharmaceutical companies trying to incite fear so that they can make money. Is that too simplistic? 
Yeah, I'd say as a, as a root cause specialist, often uh, there are multi-factor problems and there are multi-factor root causes, you know, and not one simple cause. So I'd say that a big cause of this, if we work through them, a massive cause of this panic was the politicians and the academics who were scared and the footage and the media in a modern hyper-connected world, photos from China, you could say that China actually cleverly spread fear to Europe. You know, there was some article in the New York Times about 100,000 Twitter accounts, Chinese-based, were all exaggerating Italy and saying how Italy lockdown was going to be amazing. So I, I think maybe Chinese messed with Europe and the US a bit. So that's one partial driver. But the politicians and academics truly did lose the plot and everyone got terrified. And then Imperial College and IHME came in with the modeling that was 12 times too high. And that scared the hell out of the politicians. So all of that fear in a vicious cycle and precautionary principle drove the lockdowns. And I'm not sure that pharma and the WHO had a huge amount to do with that. We kind of did it to ourselves. But... After that, I think worldwide organizations like the WHO and the World Economic Forum has now come out with the Great Reset. And they saw the opportunity that Corona could be a way to shake the whole world up. And like Naomi Klein's uh, disaster capitalism, remember No Logo? Everyone can take advantage of a disaster. Yeah. And I think a lot of organizations like UN, EU, there were plans for mass vaccination and vaccine passports in the next few years. They were all documented. But I think all of these huge organizations began to see this an opportunity, opportunity yeah. to bring in change. Yeah. So I think then that all those organizations have a lot of common goals and a lot of them overlap with pharma. So I think you've got a conglomerate of connected worldwide organizations that are very influential. And people then wonder, but how come all the governments went crazy? And how come all the governments together didn't back off on the lockdown when clearly the epidemic was over? And people are fascinated how all the governments stayed crazy, except for Sweden. They followed science uh, and a couple more. And the reason is, I think, that they're all getting guidance from what I described. I mean, they are. It's not a secret. The WHO, the CEO of YouTube said clearly right. back in April, right. if you say anything that goes against specifically the WHO, we'll take your video down. So in other words, someone decided the WHO was the grandmaster, the god of everything. Science didn't matter anymore. This was it. So when that happens, of course, you've got this very high-level influential worldwide organization that's kind of setting the tempo and, and directing. So the masks all flowed from there as well. So mm -hmm. the epidemic was over mm -hmm. in Europe. Everything was calming down. And next minute, suddenly, we all needed masks. <laughs> and call me a cynic, <laughs> you know, in fairness, Brittany, but I, I nearly collapsed that day when they started talking about masks. I said, the epidemic's over. And next winter, we're going to have plenty of coronavirus, plenty of influenza. We're going to get more mortalities. We're going to get ICUs, just like we always did. No problem with that. But it's July, in the middle of the summer. And you're, you're saying prison sentences? 
and fines suddenly for not wearing a mask. And we didn't even use them during the epidemic. So then you realize that there are bodies that are very powerful, not a conspiracy theory. Most of it they've published. Mm -hmm. And they are dictating the path forward. And America is resisting that. But then there's America. You got this huge extra factor where because of the anti-Trump sentiment and the left, if you want to call it that, (laughs) they've got their own drivers that are powerful beyond all the worldwide stuff. So everyone's got an angle, right? Yeah. And it just happens that all of the most nefarious influences in the world, unfortunately, the way it's worked out, they all benefit from hysteria. There's very few powerful, wealthy organizations that benefit from common sense and good science. Small businesses do. They have no voice. But they're getting crushed. They're 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 getting crushed. They have no voice because small businesses and even airlines we're talking about killing granny. We're talking about virology, immunology, epidemiology. No businesses can turn around and call it. They'll be damaged because they'll say you're trying to kill granny just to right. make a book. Right. So there's so a huge incentive to overreact and no incentive to be calm. And yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen in the fall? I mean, obviously, there's always as you were saying, there's always a trend upwards. There's, there are going to be, there's going to be flu mortality. There's going to be just, you know, your, your normal stuff. What do you think? Do you think there's going to be a second wave of COVID? Do you think there's going to be more attempts to create a case demic? I, I think they'll finally, I said to my wife, when the mandatory mask came in, I had a bad day because I realized how clever this was. They've got a couple of months to go before there'll be any real ICU action or mortality in the winter. And I realized by putting in the masks, you're going to create the aura of an epidemic still existing. And that's going to get you to the winter when you get your bodies. I know it's a harsh term. But no, that's but what they're looking for. Yeah. So now we're coming close. So what's going to happen is we have studies from Glasgow 2006. I've spoken on these before. And they did, I think, 13 years, 50,000 people, and they measured all the viruses they were carrying in people who had sniffles and colds. And in the summer, you got a couple of percent coronaviruses, you see, and in the winter, they go up to around 15%. So the coronavirus, the virome is going to rise up. Now, it's not going to be able to impact like it did the first time when it was new because of community immunity. You can't avoid getting some community immunity. So it's going there will be new aged, new susceptible, new stage four cancer people, you know, over the year who will have become unhealthy, immunocompromised. So there will be a new set of people exposed and there'll only be a certain amount of immunity. It's never perfect. So we're going to see people, uh, you know, passing away with coronavirus. But you're also going to see influenza. But I worry they're going to measure crazy for coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and they're going to kind of ignore everything else. And yes, they'll they'll create a pseudo-epidemic, I would guess. Now, in science, nothing is certain. All the epidemiologists I know and virologists and a professor of immunology I interviewed in Switzerland a couple of weeks ago, we all agree from the science what should happen is what's always happened. And you're going to get a hump, but it's not going to be that different from other years. 
But I worry because of the way the mindset is in the world, they're going to mine for SARS-CoV-2. They're going to find it anywhere. We, we were making a joke that if someone dies in a, a care home, they're going to be testing the bed sheets and everything. All they want to find is one viral fragment. Bang. So, so as an observer, as someone looking at the data, how do you untangle that? How, how should we be prepared to look at what's coming? Yeah, good question. I'd say all-cause mortality is crucial. So a lot of my work has been on Euromomo, 360 million people in Europe, the database of all-cause mortality. You cannot trust cases. People die with COVID, with SARS-CoV-2, not necessarily from. It's all about the all-cause mortality excess. And that's what me and the professionals all over the world are tracking, analyzing, and publishing and trying to get people to realize it's all about all-cause mortality excess trends. Corona had a big spike of 180,000 in Europe. It's clear as day. 2015 had a longer, steadier 140K. This is the only metric that can judge an epidemic of a respiratory virus. People talk about long COVID and effects, but in seven months, we have nearly no proper science on it. It's almost anecdotal. And it's normal for a severe viral infection to often, in a minority, leave long-term effects for months uh, with autoimmune reactions. I know it's tough for people. I'm not trying to downspeak it. But this year is different than ever in history. Usually, the doctor just says, oh, it'll pass. But now everyone's staring at it. <laughs> they want the hysteria. So I'd say, yeah, all-cause mortality is crucial. And we're going to keep analyzing it. And sadly, the media don't want to touch it. The media don't want to touch all-cause because of what I told you. If you present all-cause trends compared to previous years, Sweden, if you look at all-cause mortality excess for Sweden, it's no worse than anyone else. If you actually compare right. the years, right. if you compare the Spanish flu to Sweden in 2020, you can barely see the COVID spike compared to the last 10 years monthly. But the Spanish flu back in 1917 or 18 or 1819, on the same Sweden graph per million people corrected for population size is enormous. There's no comparison to the Spanish flu. It was a different universe. Right. So the all-cause mortality shows you all these compares that were in our letter. And when you look at the data, you realize, how come my perception is that this is a huge thing? It's very sad, obviously, any respiratory disease season is. But how am I perceiving it's huge and all the media are saying it, and yet the cold, hard data mm -hmm. in front of me, undeniable, clearly says it's not massively bigger than a few years in the last 20. How did we say nothing then and we've turned the whole world upside down now. Yeah. So even a non-scientist, it begins to get through. You can see the, the picture. You can, bias. yeah, yeah. It's, about uh, it's, about community immunity, do you do you think that the lockdown efforts? I mean, when you when I look at you, you put up some some awesome graphs showing you know the showing I believe it's um, excess deaths mapped against all the interventions. And you can see, you know, the interventions aren't having any impact. Did they have any impact at all? Do you, do you think they've delayed community immunity in any sense? Or were they just completely ineffective? Yeah, now that's, yeah, that's a good one, Brittany. Uh, definitely. So I'd say 
all of the science and analysis that has been done, there's around five published papers from Woods Hole Institute, German University, University of Israel, Oxford University. There's a whole bunch of proper analysis after the fact where you can actually look and see what happened. And they all pretty much say lockdown had a minimal effect. And some of them, like one in the Lancet, said it had no effect on mortality. That was a very blatant one. So you can say it's a minimal effect on mortality and an arguable effect on softening the curve in a general sense. So let's say it has an effect that's massively not worth it because of the cost and the damage and the lost cancer diagnosis, the suicides, depression, the economic disaster that's going to have so many job problems and, and the world starvation. So let's say it has an effect that's just not worth it um, and should only have been used for a week or two just in case it helped stop the hospitals overflowing, which is what they told us it was for, right. remember? Right. Two weeks, three weeks, <laughs> just two or three weeks. But two or three weeks later, when the hospitals began to go down, ah, no, 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 no. So, so that's lockdown. So it can change the dynamics, but it's just never worth it. And that's why WHO up to November 2019, no lockdowns, no masks for a pandemic. It's in their published document, November 2019. So people need to know that too. And also in all the other documentation. So it makes no sense. However, to your point, Keeping lockdowns and masks, which is never done in history, all summer long, where the virus can circulate and develop more immunity, even though these measures are not much used for attacking a real problem, you know, it's going to go through its curve anyway, they could have a backfire of just suppressing somewhat normal viral interactions, the virome and us. So ironically, they're certainly not going to help wearing masks and stuff in the summer for next winter's problem. If anything, you want to spread it as much in the summer where there's no ICU and no impacts, that's a no-brainer. That's the whole idea. That's what's happened for all of evolution. So even if lockdowns and masks do very little in real terms, using them all summer is fundamentally scientifically wrong in principle. Because if anything, you're interfering in nature with no gain and a possible loss of more susceptible people next winter. The very people that they're claiming to care about. Now, I have my doubts how much they care. Our well, politicians yeah, in Ireland, I don't want to be too cynical, but they're all there practically crying in television. And I know some of those guys. That's politics. They're not particularly waking up every morning in a cold sweat, worried about 85-year-olds in care homes passing away. That's harsh, but I'm a realist. I'm a corporate guy. I know it's the reality. Did you guys have you know. the same issue? Did you have, um, you know, in, in New York and some other states, we had politicians dictating to care homes that they had to take in COVID-19 patients. Did you guys have the same thing? We did. And amazingly, uh, I, I, I put out something back in, I think it was June 12th. I couldn't swear to the date. But I said the ultimate irony, um, on that day, our deaths had a median age of 85, I think, uh, and an average age over 80. So you knew exactly who was being affected. Mm -hmm. 
And on the same day, there was a publication in Ireland's premier newspaper where a care home nurse said, it's terrible. We've been told not to wear masks unless there's already an outbreak. And that was in mid-June. They were instructed by the government to not wear masks. And it was in a spread in the main paper the same day that the people who were dying, Ireland's 60-something percent of the deaths were care home. Yeah, uh, but in similar mid-June, here. Was largely over, they were still not being told to wear masks. And these are workers in the care home. The very place you want to. Got the whole of Ireland to wear masks for nothing. <laughs> I mean, this is why I'm pulling my hair out. Okay, I don't have it. <laughs> but so what... this is how crazy the anti science has got. But you're right. Um, the older people were the cohort of most interest. And they moved people from hospital back into homes like Cuomo in New York. There was a bit of that went on. And there was a huge amount of lack of care of the care homes. They actually locked down the whole country of healthy people where 99.999% would not be affected. Right. They locked down the whole shooting match while actually missing on the care homes where the problem was. Right. You could do it worse. You couldn't do it worse. It's impossible. What do you think you, or I should ask, has anybody that you know, has anybody looked at um, total excess mortality, say for a state or a country or a region, um, subtract from that excess mortality from care homes? Do we know what that number looks like? Well, for Ireland, Ireland was claiming 1,700 and then the Irish HICWA Health Authority a couple of months back said, well, actually, it's more like 1,100. And that's out of four and a half million people. So it was 0.036%, which is tiny. But they dropped it around, down to around 0.022, which is super tiny, with a median age of 84 and an average age of 81, right? And then more recently, they're saying it might be more like 800, really which is around 0.015, which is almost nothing. No disrespect to the people who passed. But you are talking, let's be honest, negligible. So if you look at Ireland on overall excess mortality, we've got a bump on Euromomo, the European database. And for the last couple of months, we're dramatically lower than normal mortality. Ah. So yes, people were pulled forward, died a little earlier, with, with the effect of corona, right? No, no denialism of corona, right? It exists, it's a virus, it kills people. Um, but now we've got a subnormal mortality rate. So it's looking like Ireland will end up the end of the year. And if you look at the whole year, you won't be able to see anything. And I mean, you're going to find years previously that were much worse and no one did anything. And you're going to see that all over the world. All over the world, you're going to see the same thing. But the media won't be interested in that story because not only is that the story they want, but also it makes them look stupid. So they're never going to run it. Right. Right. People say, well, why were, you, why were you driving everyone crazy six months ago? They're not going to cover the story. The politicians are never going to want that story to come out because they'll call questions on what the hell they were doing. So, and then the powerful organizations we mentioned, they certainly don't want that story coming out because that's going to mess up every strategy they ever planned. They need this to be a crisis to, to help deploy all the other plans. So we've got headwinds uh, 
Brittany, I, to say the least, yeah, we got headwinds. So one one other thing I wanted to ask you about um, something something else that I think they don't they don't want getting out there as a story that you've done quite a lot of research on, and that's vitamin D. So when when there are when there seem to be you know fairly easy already existing treatment options, that's something that either gets discredited or just sort of shoved out of the media. What, what can you tell us about vitamin D and COVID-19? Right. Well, vitamin D, I, I, I did a few uh, talks on this, put them on YouTube, and I explained that the first studies on COVID outcomes and vitamin D status in your blood test were dramatic. And they were corrected for age and comorbidity. So there were good studies, but they couldn't prove cause. But they showed generally, if you're below 20 nanograms, in your blood level, which for me is someone with, with metabolic issues, but it's most of America, um, you had 10 times the risk of a bad outcome or death than someone who was above 30 nanograms per mil. And it just lines up exactly what I've known for years. I did a two-hour lecture on vitamin D in 2014. Above 30 indicates metabolic health and immune health. Below 20 indicates serious long-term chronic disease problems are in your future. So it lines up. So there was that. So I went through that and explained it. And I explained, well, how do you get your vitamin D status above 30? It's not just supplements, because supplements <clears throat> might raise the number, but not exactly give you all of the health benefits that are causing the 10 times less impact. So I said, if you eat meat, fish, and eggs, and nutrient-dense foods, and you stop eating processed carbohydrates, sugars, and vegetable oils, stop eating ultra-processed food, your vitamin D status will go right up in your blood, even with no supplements. And if you resolve an autoimmune issue or a chronic disease issue, you could have a low D and it go right back up. So it's a marker for metabolic health. And we know how you fix metabolic health issues. So we made the point that you can fix these issues in weeks with the right approach, and you'll drastically reduce your risk. But you're right. The, the orthodoxy said um, no. So I noticed in March very quickly, a lot of articles came out. You can't change your immune function. They were very, very explicit. Uh, you can't boost your immune. You can't change your immune function. So either you've got, we get a treatment or we get a vaccine. Otherwise, you can't do it. It's a myth. That's a myth. They said it. And I'm thinking, you're denying all of science. You're denying immunology. You're denying metabolic science. You're denying everything. But they did. Uh, but the really interesting one, you like this, I was astounded around May when a couple of the health websites, they weren't selling supplements, they did web pages, kind of talking what I'm talking about. Vitamin D status is very important in your outcome. It's highly correlated with outcome. Here's how you can improve your health. The FDA sent them injunctions, letters. So a few websites were taking down just for discussing vitamin D and COVID outcomes. And basically they said, you're not allowed to talk about that. You're not allowed to talk about it. So we're looking for treatment. We're looking for a vaccine. Uh, you're not allowed to talk about that stuff and COVID. So it's like YouTube is taking down all the epidemiologists, virologists, immunology people. Anyone who said, ironically, how it turned out, anyone who was saying that in March and April just got taken down off YouTube. So I think it is, yeah, the regulatory capture is so profound now. I think 75% of the FDA's budget comes directly from pharma. And we've seen for 15 years now, 
the revolving door, you get these sarcastic articles where the head of a pharma company becomes the head of FDA, vice versa. I think they're so entwined now that, yes, the interests of pharma are being executed partly via the arm of the FDA. So that's just the way it appears. And the proof is injunctions against websites simply talking about vitamin D. Uh, but the last thing I'll say in vitamin D is I would certainly say you fix your metabolic health, your nutrient-dense food, nutrition, lifestyle, get your D up properly, maybe take supplements if you're low. No harm could be really useful. But I don't like pushing supplements. However, a week ago, a human randomized control trial came out from Spain the gold standard of causality evidence. Small numbers, but with a high dose of vitamin D over many weeks, they had 95% approximately lower ICU admittance, specifically in the randomized vitamin D arm versus placebo. Now, I haven't seen a trial, and I've thousands of them I've analyzed. You very seldom see an intervention where you have 20 times less problem outcome with your treatment. I mean, that's ridiculous. 20% less, not 95% less. It's a small trial, but it was randomized, published. A stunning outcome just for very high dose vitamin D supplementation. I don't know, are the FDA going to say, sorry, you're not allowed to publish that? Right. Gonna what are they going to Like a yeah. book? I mean, that's, that's kind of where we are in this country. It's, it's very close to that. Well, lucky um, this is Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, thank, thank God they don't, they don't um, control the whole world yet. Um, yes. <laughs> my big question for you. Oh. So it's, um, you know, I think for anyone who's really paying attention, who's, who's watching your videos, who's looking at the actual evidence and what's going on, it's it's pretty clear that the lockdowns, A, didn't do what they were supposed to do, which was flatten the curve in those few weeks, and B, haven't haven't produced a good outcome, haven't haven't improved things. Alternate universe, if they had, if the lockdowns were effective in this sense, would you support them? Do you do you think they're it's justified to take these actions if they did produce good results? Well, hmm, that's a, that's a good question. I've been asked before, what would I have done in the same circumstances? But this is a different question. This is if they worked. If they were very effective, much more than the WHO 2019 guidelines, which is hands, hygiene, bit of distancing, if the lockdowns really made a difference, I would support them fully for the Gumpert's hump and to make sure the hospitals did not get overflowing, because if the hospitals overflow, people actually begin to suffer. It's the virus that causes the problem. But if you overflow a hospital, now you're adding a human element of, of inadequacy to cause more suffering and death. So I would support them fully until we were sure that the, that the viral uh, epidemic was declining, like all before it and we were safely below hospital capacity. And then I would, in a stepped fashion, take out the lockdown measures very promptly following the falling wave and be ready to put them back in if the curve turned, which I wouldn't expect to happen, but if it did. So I would manage it like all the crisis management I've done in the past, proportionate measures appropriate to the technical scenario and to the people 
and to society and the health of the whole nation, not just the narrow number of aged comorbid mainly, but looking at the health of the whole nation, the children, the schools, the society, the economy, healthcare in general. I would have managed it as I've managed all my crises. And um, I would have used lockdowns if it was, as you say, but I would have used them proportionately and scientifically. So in this case, we know the lockdowns don't really do much, and they overuse them to the point of absurdity. So there's two fails on top of each other, and that's what makes it crazy. But anyway, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, I, would, no, I would use good. them as, as any tool. Um, but I think hygiene hands, a bit of distancing for symptomatic. If you're sick, stay home. Um, and all the WHO 2019 guidelines for pandemics published which are still up there on the sound. that's that's still up on the who website is that that right or have they changed that uh, they might have taken it down by now but i downloaded <laughs> a hard copy yeah for for, for obvious okay. reasons but they're very clear um no lockdowns no masks in a pandemic end of 19 who everything changed in, in february march wow. no explanation really yet except china did it so right. I think it's the first time in the West's existence where China or Russia or a communist country having done something became an imperative for us to throw out the science and all do it. Right. right. That's right. a first. It's yeah, it's crazy times. Thank you so much. Um, anything else you want to add? Any any other points you want to leave us with? Uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Oh, I think it's a lot of ground. I'll do one little very fascinating fact. I've showed these graphs, um, but you can put a link to my Big yes, view I'm going video, to. That, yeah. that gets everything in one. But um, just what I say in it is seasonality. So I mentioned at the start, Europe is kind of March, April, up and down in the classic sharp curve. Northeast America is the same because it's like Europe. Southern America is long and slow with a hump uh, kind of May, June, July, August. That's what we see. Brazil and Peru are the same. They're both the same impact on deaths per million out there in, you know, June, July, August. And they're both the same, even though one locked down and one didn't. But the very interesting thing is Brazil in the sewage analysis, human sewage, in November 19 had SARS-CoV-2 in the human sewage. It was in the population in November 19, same as Spain and Italy. But Italy went up and Brazil came up much slower, like Southern America. So people just need to realize the virome is complex. It's not to do with lockdowns and stuff. Once the virus is through your community, it will trigger and do its thing. And we humans, to believe we can do some medieval kind of scientific stuff and change it, it's not surprising they didn't work because it was never really going to happen. So that's probably it. And you can search my name, Ivor Cummins. You'll see my YouTube and all. I'll link, have a I'll link to and a I'll, PayPal. Yeah, hmm? I'll put up links to to all of your all of your stuff. Great stuff. Give you a whole bunch of links. Enjoyed now that rant. Sorry, <laughs> I am quite passionate about this for the reasons. That's awesome. That are... No, that's you, this is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much. It, this is I really appreciate you coming I, on. No, thanks a lot, Brittany. I know it's a podcast is usually like kind of. 50 50 conversation i just feel this is more like an interview in a movie yeah no 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 <laughs> this this talking. was fantastic this was fantastic thank you thank you so much great stuff have a great evening bye you now, too Brittany. you too thank thanks you.